that's the nice thing about a fuel cell is that you're not buying a whole bunch of mined minerals where the energy content is, right? The energy content is in the fuel and we're ready for whatever fuel the market wants to throw at us. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about fuel cells, how these chemical power plants come in all sizes. I first covered fuel cells back in episode two. That technology was small and really confined to hydrogen as a fuel source, and that's where fuel cells live in most of our imaginations, cars that run on hydrogen. My guest blows these two assumptions away. First, they specialize in massive fuel cells, as big as three megawatts. Stringing these units together, they boast the largest fuel cell power plants in both the United States and the world. That versatility threw me for a loop. Yes, they run on hydrogen, but they are designed to take on basically anything that's remotely a hydrocarbon. That means now natural gas, biogas, propane, methane, methanol. The secret is they strip out the hydrogen and run that through the systems. That leaves behind a pretty clean stream of CO2, which you can capture or utilize, as they call it. But that's not all. My guest says these fuel cells can be used as hydrogen generators, which can then be stored and used later. My wife and I call this phenomenon too much awesome. Clean burning, efficient, cost effective. What's the downside? Maybe that they don't offer a utility scale 300 megawatt model. But my guess says that's because they want to focus on the microgrid market, where power is more locally consumed. Plus, they say several of their clients bought their units specifically because of the grid, and those big conventional power plants went offline during storms, for instance. As the grid becomes more distributed and consumers clamor for more sustainable clean energy, these mid-size, large fuel cells may fill the need. Their size and their versatility make them leaders in colossal chemistry that only fuel cells can provide. My guest today is Tony Leo, Chief Technology Officer for Fuel Cell Energy, a Connecticut developer of the fuel cells we're profiling today. Fuel Cell was founded in 1969. Tony's been with the company since 1978. Job history like this makes me jealous. Just look at my LinkedIn and you'll see. FCE has been working on ways to commercialize this technology for decades, and it would appear that energy needs have finally caught up with them. I was interested in this because I never thought fuel cells would be used at this scale or with more conventional fuels. Maybe when hydrogen becomes more ubiquitous, but that could be years. We also discussed the need for more sustainable materials and supply chains, which you heard Tony allude to in the cold open. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony Leo. Tony Leo, CTO of Fuel Cell Energy. And Tony, most of us think of fuel cells for hydrogen, but it appears that your company is here to say, hey, fuel cells are ready now and hydrogen can meet us along the way. Is that 
fairly accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. Actually, when we first started to think about commercializing fuel cells in the late 1990s, we've been working on them since the 80s. Pure hydrogen was a really attractive fuel, but quite a ways off into the future. So we focused on fuel cells that could run off readily available fuels, natural gas, renewable biogas. Our fuel cells can run on hydrogen, but they can run on fuels that are available here today, and they'll be ready to support a hydrogen infrastructure in the future. That's interesting because I think we also picture fuel cells, again, hydrogen for cars. Your products are more on the large industrial scale. This is something I don't think we would have thought of for fuel cells, right? So why did you pick that avenue as opposed to smaller, more mobile options for fuel cells? Yeah, it's a very good question. When we were deciding to commercialize our carbonate fuel cell technology, we looked around and said, well, what are the possible applications? There could be you know, mobile applications for vehicles but those really are best for a pure hydrogen technology, or there could be small fuel cells for homes, or there could be large fuel cells for utilities and commercial industrial customers. And that large fuel cell application is where we thought we had the best chance of doing something that was cost-effective and that could make an impact. And so these large fuel cells, right, are essentially taking the place of, say, a diesel generator or a small turbine. Exactly. We call them microturbine. That's exactly right. right. One difference between us and, say, a diesel generator is that very few places will let you run a diesel generator around the clock. On the other hand, our fuel cells are so clean, we're always running around the clock. And the way we do a backup application is... We don't sit there waiting for the grid to go out before we turn on. We're constantly providing power to the customer. And if the grid goes away, we keep providing the customer power. And it's something that's unique to us because we are such a clean generator. Yeah. Tony, what is going on in a large industrial fuel cell like this, chemical reaction-wise? And what might be some of the trade-offs associated with using a fuel cell? Is it maybe not as efficient? I have no clue. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, let me try to give you a clue. It's more efficient, typically, than alternatives, the small diesels or engines. It is more efficient in terms of the carbon footprint than most electrical grids. So if you're taking power from a fuel cell, you're emitting less carbon than if you were to take that power from the electrical grid. It can provide this backup feature, which provides an advantage there. And what goes on inside a fuel cell is very different from what goes on inside an engine. We don't burn the fuel. We send the fuel into the fuel cell and we react the fuel in what we call an electrochemical reaction. It's a catalytic reaction that doesn't produce the high temperature flame, which leads to a lot of the emissions like nitrogen and sulfur oxides and particulates. We avoid those so-called criteria pollutants by reacting the fuel catalytically instead of in a combustion reaction. So if it's more efficient, cleaner, all those sort of things, is exactly. is your hardware more expensive? It's, more, trying exp to dig it's here. more expensive in some areas, for example. We tend to think of our costs in terms of the cost of electricity that we produce, which is maybe eight to 11 cents per kilowatt hour. In Connecticut, electricity is much more expensive than that. But in the middle of the country where there's a lot of coal power, electricity is less expensive than that. So in some areas, fuel cells are more expensive than the grid. In other areas, they're cost competitive. So I think the big question is, why not until now <laughs> with fuel cells like this? 
Yeah, well, what there certainly is a much stronger focus in all levels of the corporate world on sustainability. So people are starting to ask the question, what are my sustainability targets and how can I reach them? And for a lot of those people, on-site power generation from a fuel cell is one way to do it. For a lot of larger scale utility fuel cells are a way for them to meet their sustainability targets. And so I think the why now part, we've generally been reducing in cost over the years. That's part of it. But the big part is that people are more sustainability focused these days. Yeah. So would this replace, say, a combustion turbine for natural gas? Absolutely. And if you think about combustion turbines, our largest system is a 3.7 megawatt system. People have done larger projects by putting a bunch of our systems together. The largest is just under 60 megawatts. A 60 megawatt gas turbine is fairly inefficient, loud. It's just a bad neighbor. There are very large gas turbines, 500 megawatts or so that are more efficient, but they're more like a central power generation and you need some transmission distribution and so forth. What we offer compared to a gas turbine is we offer clean power that can be distributed amongst the utility grid, which is more efficient. It avoids transmission and distribution losses. And we can pull that off because we're such a good neighbor, because we're quiet and because we're clean. You said something about them being able to call on and call off faster than certainly a steam turbine and probably a combustion turbine as well, right? Yeah, combustion turbines, you know, they're pretty good at ramping up and ramping down, and they're often deployed as peakers. We prefer to be deployed as baseload, where we just keep producing power 24-7. And the reason for that is that means we're avoiding emissions 24-7, and it also is more economical. Let's talk about some of the fuels. I just had a guess who was talking about propane. I've heard of methanol, hydrogen, methane. Yeah, so, so we've developed and commercially sell power plant systems based on our carbonate fuel cell platform. And we also have another platform we're working on called solid oxide, which is similar that we're developing. And both of those platforms are high temperature systems. And without getting into the details, that means they're very, very fuel flexible. They can run on propane, methanol, all those fuels you mentioned. We focus on natural gas because it's available. We also focus on biogas fuels because what biogas is, is it's methane, which is the same fuel component that's in natural gas, but it's diluted by carbon dioxide from the biological process. And it turns out that that dilution doesn't make a difference to our carbonate fuel cell. It actually likes it a little bit. So it's a very, very good match for biogas applications. So the two most common fuels that have been deployed are natural gas and renewable biogas. We've done some projects with coal gas. We've done some projects with propane. And we're ready for whatever fuel the market wants to throw at us. But natural gas and biogas have been the two so far. We know that if you do hydrogen for fuel cells, you get water, vapor, essentially. That's correct. Yep. What happens with some of these hydrocarbon? So what happens with the hydrocarbons, the first thing we do inside our stack is we convert that hydrocarbon to hydrogen. We strip off the hydrogens. Hydrocarbons are hydrogen and carbon. We react that with water that the fuel cell produces to make hydrogen and CO2. And that hydrogen is what we use actually to make power. So there is some CO2 produced, but because we're more efficient, we produce less CO2, say, per kilowatt hour of power generation. And that conversion from hydrocarbon to hydrogen is done very efficiently. So that helps the efficiency of our system. Yeah. So you're getting 
pure CO2, right? Carbon capture. Well, that's the interesting thing is that because we react the hydrocarbon fuel before we've mixed it with air and we don't burn it, when we do produce the CO2, it's very concentrated. It's easy to extract that CO2. So that's a feature we offer now on our plants, which instead of emitting the CO2, you can extract the CO2 and use it for a local food and beverage application or cement application or whatever the local application is. Yeah. And look, I was executive director of a carbon capture and storage association like 12 years ago. And it was always pre-combustion carbon capture, post-combustion carbon capture, something going on after you've consumed the fuel, right? Yeah. And it was difficult because after you've consumed the fuel, you've mixed it with air and burned it. So it was very dilute. In a fuel cell, you can extract it before you do that. Yeah. And I recently have talked to guests who've done things like oxy fuel combustion, where they're combusting the fuel with oxygen, and that allows for a pure CO2 stream. But even that requires oxygen. <laughs> you it know, requires you have to... a big air separation plant that consumes a lot of energy. And where does that energy come from? So, yeah, yeah. I think it's much more effective to do it in the fuel cell. Both of our fuel cells can do that carbon export that I mentioned just because of the fact that we're not mixing the fuel with air. But our carbonate fuel cell, because of its unique electrochemistry, can do another trick. It can capture CO2 from an external source. So if you take the exhaust gas from a boiler or a power plant and send it into the air intake of our carbonate fuel cell, the carbonate fuel cell can take the CO2 that might be in that gas at 5 to 15%, depending on where it's coming from, and transfer it to the fuel stream and concentrate it up to about 70%. Then it's in that stream where it's easy to capture the CO2 from. Right. So you might not be getting any BTU value out of that, but you can at least take the flue gas from exactly. other. Yeah. And so you see this basically being co-located. Exactly. Maybe more traditional plants. That's exactly right. And what's unique about it is that a lot of people are trying to find a good way to do carbon capture from power plants and boilers. And every way that people are looking at involves the consumption of a lot of energy. A 500 megawatt power plant becomes a 300 megawatt power plant because you have to give 200 megawatts to the carbon capture system. In our case, our carbon capture technology actually produces extra power. Now, it doesn't come from nowhere. You know, you have to give it a fuel. But what our system does is it captures all the CO2 from its fuel, plus a large part of the CO2 from the flue gas of the system that we're capturing from. Okay, you get that, kids. <laughs> so what, if any, work are you doing with hydrogen? Where do you see fuel cell energy finally coming together with hydrogen, yeah, we're green hydrogen from renewables, things like that? Yeah, we're doing tons and tons of work with hydrogen and we work so well with hydrocarbon fuels and natural gas and we're doing so many cool things with hydrogen that we really are excited about the whole energy transition because we see ourselves playing all through the energy transition. Just to tell you a little bit about what we're doing with hydrogen, one thing is I mentioned that we convert these hydrocarbons to hydrogen inside our fuel cell and then use it to make power. One thing we can do is we can make extra hydrogen and extract that hydrogen. So now we've got a system that makes power and hydrogen. And we actually have done a few demonstrations of that, and we're doing our first full-scale commercial system right now. We're building it at Long Beach, California for Toyota, where they're bringing in their fuel cell vehicles and they're fueling fuel cell trucks. We're actually going to produce power, hydrogen, and water for Toyota. They're going to use the water to wash cars from this system that we call tri-generation. So that's one hydrogen technology that we're doing. The other is we can use our fuel cells in reverse, if you will, instead of putting fuel in and getting power out, we can send power and steam in and get hydrogen out, electrolysis. Our solid oxide in particular is a very high efficiency electrolysis platform. And so we've done a demonstration in our Danbury facility. We're building a 270 kilowatt 
robot system to be tested at Idaho National Labs later this year. And we're really excited about this high efficiency electrolysis we can do with solid oxide. You mentioned that you've gotten up to about 60 megawatt. Most of these are on the, you know, megawatt, three megawatt up to right. three. For example, at the Pfizer R&D facility in Groton, Connecticut, they have two of our 2.8 megawatt units. That's 5.6 total. Those two units provide power to their R&D facility, provides all the steam to their R&D facility. If the grid goes away, which it often does there, we can continue to power their experiments and so forth. So we're real proud of that one, you know, because of the role that they played in the development and manufacture of the vaccine. But one of the reasons why they went with our system is their grid was very unstable. Yeah, this is all getting into distributed generation, which is exactly <laughs> kind of obtuse. But I take it this is the space that you guys are working in. Distributed generation, almost microgrid. You're talking about reliability in that exactly. one example you just gave. Exactly, right. Where do you think all yeah. that's going? We think distributed generation is really important, especially if we think about the Northeast, some of the storm events that Connecticut and New Jersey had over the years, which triggered a lot of local microgrid programs where people could get funding to put in microgrid systems. That resiliency aspect is very, very important. And also it's harder and harder to put transmission and distribution lines in. It becomes difficult to put in a giant three gigawatt plant and a bunch of lines versus putting plants throughout the grid. Yeah. And I certainly see where not only is, does it need to be distributed and all that, but it doesn't need to be a funky <laughs> fuel source, right? Exactly, it exactly. needs to be something that can kind of eat it all. <laughs> right. right. That's exactly right. I once interviewed Vartzilla about an integrated solution involving renewables, battery storage, and they specialize in diesel generation, but it was clean diesel. I could very easily see something with renewables to hydrogen, this combined with some sort of storage solution. Tell us a little bit more about how you see this integrating with a couple oh, of other things. I, I know we've that talked that, about this before. Yeah, we absolutely see that same vision. For example, one system that we're working on is on our solid oxide platform, you can actually run the platform in electrolysis mode, make hydrogen, store that hydrogen, and then you can send that same hydrogen back to the same stacks and run them in fuel cell mode and make power again. That becomes an interesting energy storage application, which has a few applications. One is resiliency, similar to the example that you were mentioning. And the other is just helping intermittent renewables integrate with the grid. As you get more and more intermittent renewables, you're going to get them making power when it's not needed, and you're going to make them make less power when it is needed. So if you can time shift power, on a large scale over many hours, technology like that could be very attractive as you try to decarbonize the grid. That's so one that's key area where we see ourselves playing in the so-called hydrogen-based energy storage. Yeah. And tell me a little bit more about your kit, especially one of the things I've talked a lot about, especially when it comes to batteries, is in a lot of cases, a lot of these technologies, there are supply chains that go all through Asia. So how locally sourced is, is this? Can you build a fuel cell generator here in North America? Is yeah, it a little bit more than 80% of our content in our power plants is domestically sourced. One of the differences is if you think of a battery, a big part of a battery is the actual chemicals that'll be doing the electrochemistry, the lithium and the cobalt or the lead and the acid or the nickel and the cadmium, whatever the battery is, right? In a fuel cell, the fuel cell electrodes are just reaction substrates. The reaction is going to happen between air and fuel. The electrodes themselves are thin. Some hydrogen fuel cells have a platinum catalyst. We don't need that for our high temperature systems. We just have a very thin 
porous nickel electrode that is the catalyst for the system. So we use nickel, which is expensive. But on the other hand, we use relatively little of it. That's the nice thing about a fuel cell is that you're not buying a whole bunch of mined minerals where the energy content is, right? The energy content is in the fuel and the stack itself is just kind of a place for the reactions to happen. Or a bunch of chips. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. right. Yeah. Wrapping up, how do you see yourselves positioned as we move into more of it all, right? More hydrogen, more CO2 mitigation, more distributed generation. It's very easy with something like this to want to gobble it all. So how are you taking that approach as you're growing? Yeah, we're definitely happy to gobble it all. <laughs> but the approach basically is we have a basket of technologies that can play in a lot of different ways in the energy transition. Right now, we have the carbonate fuel cell that can utilize available natural gas very efficiently, very cleanly. And as we want to transition away from natural gas, we have technologies that can run on pure hydrogen. And maybe more importantly, is we have technologies that can produce hydrogen cleanly and efficiently. So we have these unique technologies that can help us effectively use the available hydrocarbons that we unfortunately rely on today because our economy has just grown up with them. But it can also help us produce and consume the cleaner fuels that'll be out there in the future. And that's kind of how we see ourselves playing. Very good. Tony, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Unfortunately, our society is addicted to it. It's available at scale. We have to use it very cleanly and efficiently while we figure out how to use less and less of it. Crude oil. Obviously, the transportation fuel of choice right now, but also it is the source of a lot of the materials we use. You don't even think about it, all the plastics and so forth. One of the ways you can think about decarbonizing crude oil is a lot of the refining of the oil is done in ways that emit CO2. If you think about changing some of the refining techniques to use clean hydrogen or to capture the CO2. That's one way to think about decarbonizing crude oil. Nuclear. There's a lot of work going on about thinking of using nuclear to make hydrogen in electrolysis. Clearly has a role to play in the energy transition. It might be a very interesting approach to low-cost hydrogen. Coal. And I'll add coal with carbon capture. But maybe that inexpensive coal can be used cleanly with carbon capture. But largely, market forces have moved people away from coal into natural gas, and that will probably continue. Wind and solar. Wind and solar are both technologies we absolutely need on the grid. They have limitations in terms of the capacity factor, but they're absolutely zero carbon power. We need to put as much of it on the grid as we can manage. And we think we can help manage some of these intermittent renewables with some advanced energy storage technologies. Biofuels. An excellent low carbon fuel, especially for our carbonate fuel cells. They run really well on biofuels. The only problem with biofuels is there's a limited amount of it available. And so we'd like to see more focus on putting in digesters to convert municipal wastewater into methane, to convert agricultural into methane. And we'd really like to see the biofuels infrastructure opened up. Hydroelectric. Absolutely wonderful. It's zero carbon. It is tremendously impactful on the environment, obviously. So there's going to be limited opportunities to talk farmers into giving up their land in the future. It just doesn't happen anymore. But where it's available, it can be a tremendous resource. Geothermal. Limited in terms of where it's available geographically, but I certainly advocate tapping into it wherever it's available. 
Energy storage. Going to be absolutely essential to integrating intermittent renewables on the grid as we go forward. We think that lithium batteries are great for two, three, four hour energy storage applications. But beyond that, there really isn't enough lithium or cobalt in the world to provide the storage capacity that's needed for widespread grid adoption of wind and solar. That's where we think that hydrogen-based energy storage can actually play a key role. Energy efficiency. It's just a given. No matter what technologies we have going down the road, it will always make sense to utilize the energy that's produced thermal or electrical as efficiently as possible. That should be the first thing we do. And then finally, fusion power. I've been waiting so long. First of all, I enjoyed a little bit of a rare fusion power because we had a rare sunny day in Connecticut here this weekend. <laughs> but I'm waiting for actual electricity from fusion power, and I'm rooting for them. All right. Tony Leo, Fuel Cell Energy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great talking to you. That was Tony Leo, CTO of Fuel Cell Energy, a Danbury, Connecticut-based developer of, yes, fuel cells. I want to thank Tony for his time, as well as Melissa Sheridan at Light PR for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on Energy-Cast, as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 139. Be sure to join us next week when we explore a way to make spent nuclear fuel safe, near-exhaustible batteries. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.